Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is, should I work with startups? And um, I think a lot of people are faced with this, with this choice, and the choice may come in one of two forms. It could be um, like myself in the form of being a, a trusted advisor and a service provider. And it can also be in the context of being offered employment. Um, you know, startups need, like any other company, they need good talent, need great talent. And I would argue that startups need great talent more than anybody because they don't have the margin for error that, um, that, that other companies do. But it, it's not that easy a decision. Startups are you know, they're a different animal. They're a different animal in terms of the pace of how they do things. By definition, you're operating in an environment of tremendous uncertainty. Um, how much and whether you get paid can be, um, can be a significant question. Um, you may be asked to take stock in form of compensation or warrants or equity or something. And, and there are other complications as well. And so, you know, the thing about startups is that working with startups is pretty sexy. Back when we have cocktail parties again, they'll make for great cocktail party stories. But what I want to get into today with our guest is, you know, is it more than a cocktail party story? Is there, is there a, does it, how do you think about, how do you make the decision whether or not you're open to working with startups? How do you make that work for you? And, and how do you get the best benefit from it? How does a startup benefit from that? So joining us today is Harlan Jacobs of Genesis Business Centers Limited. Genesis Business Centers offers specialized services to high-tech inventors and entrepreneurs in respect to, of assistance with raising initial seed and venture capital, as well as international licensing and joint venture agreements. They also provide acting CFO services. Harlan Jacobs is the founder and president of Genesis Business Centers. And they're established in 1993. That's 27 years. So they're doing something right. Or if they're doing it wrong, they're doing it for an awfully long time. Mr. Jacobs is a seasoned CFO with over 20 years experience as a corporate controller and treasurer prior to becoming involved in the fields of business incubation and early stage venture or seed capital. Harlan is also active internationally and is acting executive director of the American Israel Chamber of Commerce of Minnesota and is the vice chairman of the Swedish American Chamber of Commerce of Minnesota. Harlan Jacobs, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Mike. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So let, let's, let's start off easy here. You know, in your mind, what constitutes a startup, right? I want to get that out there because I think a startup can mean different things to different people at different times from different perspectives. So in your mind, when we, if somebody asked you to kind of define a startup, what does that look like to you? Great question. And uh, I wish the headline writers in the newspapers and magazines would come on a standardized definition. What's a startup to, to get to your point. Um, basically I, I think that the public would be well served uh, your viewers and readers to understand that it's usually a brand new company that's been formed or is about to be formed and they intend to develop and commercialize a particular product or service, usually high tech, but not necessarily high tech. And there's a sense that this new idea or invention has great value and unique characteristics that put it in a category of a breakthrough technology could very well be disruptive and therefore generate sales and profits 
and ultimately capital gains for the founders and the initial investors. That's my nutshell version of a startup. So, you know, you have a background, you've had some success in large companies and you've had success with, with small companies and startups and you work with startups now on a daily basis. How, what is, what is that experience like? How is it, how is it working with a startup versus a more established company? And maybe in your answer, you could touch upon, you know, what is that transition like? If you're, if you're used to working in that larger environment, you know, what is the culture shock like going from, from a larger company to a startup? Uh, again, another great question. Uh, when I try to acquaint people who have no experience with startups, but are enamored from the various cocktail party conversations that they've uh, been a party to. And they say, Hey, I'd, I'd like to learn more about startups. Uh, I, I start them out with the differentiation as follows in, in a startup to make the payroll, you've got to be able to build a product, sell a product, collect the receivable, cover all the expenses, and then have money left to pay the payroll in yourself. Whereas the big company experience that many of these people come from is the idea of making payroll is you call the payroll department and they issue the checks. Um, so it's a whole different world and, and a person has to be uh, capable of doing many things. Uh, a person that's involved in engineering, but also has a flair for sales and marketing will be very valuable as opposed to the salesperson who can only sell or the engineer who can only do engineering. And, and it's just literally a different world. Yeah. So interesting. You mentioned that. So in your mind then, you know, somebody who's a good fit for a startup might be somebody who's comfortable playing many roles as opposed to being strictly a deep specialist. Absolutely. The, the cross-disciplinarian, to borrow a term, is uh, a characteristic of many successful tech entrepreneurs. And uh, in the company I was with back in the 80s, Film Tech Corporation, we had an engineer uh, who was also very good at sales and marketing. And so he went out around the world and helped sell the reverse osmosis desalination membranes, even though he could have been back in the office helping with the engineering. And there was an example of a good, successful cross-disciplinarian. So you, you said something there, or in your initial answer, you said something that I think a lot of people are going to prick their ears, which is, you know, the difference between a startup, and I think this is a really interesting definition, you know, just startup versus established company is, is how you make payroll. You know, one is you got to make, you got to make sure there's money in the account. The other is you call the payroll department. Um, you know, that might be enough to kind of scare a lot of people away. If you don't know about how payroll is going to be made in spite of that, why do, why do you and others find it attractive to work with startups in spite of that uncertainty? It's, it might sound corny to say, but there's really a lot of excitement and energy involved in being with a startup, whatever your relationship, whether you're an employee, a founder, a service provider, or an advisor. Um, you've got a chance to bring world-class disruptive technology to the marketplace, and you're working with people who are uh, extremely skilled in a particular technical discipline. Uh, and you might be part of the next Microsoft. You might be part of the next Medtronic, uh, which is a success story here in Minnesota, or you might be part of the next film tech, which was the company I had the privilege of working with. And it's very exciting to be part of that. But what a lot of people don't realize is during the excitement, there's also a lot of periods that are terrifying, frustrating, and you're coming to close to the edge of the cliff. And that's, it's easy to be excited, interested in the exciting aspects of it. And very few people have a comprehensive and depth, in-depth understanding of the terror that's involved in being part of a startup. I'll get, give you an example. Uh, about 25 years ago, I was an advisor to a company, and I got a frantic call on a Sunday afternoon at about 5 p.m., and, and I could tell that there was distress in the caller's voice, and he explained to me that he didn't know how he was going to make payroll. And I said, well, didn't you plan for this? He said, well, I was supposed to get a check on Wednesday from this guy, and then it didn't come Wednesday. And then the guy said he'll put it in the Federal Express, and then it didn't come on Friday. But then he assured me it was there, and it didn't come Saturday, but I, re I released the payroll checks on Friday. What do I do now? And <laughs> that, that's a friend of mine who coined the phrase the roommate factor. 
what's it like to be an advisor or a board member, an officer of a company that that had all the other challenges, and then all of a sudden on a Sunday at 5 p.m., you hear about a new challenge that you can't solve, and you just have to help the person through a, a crisis. You know, and and that that's that that is sort of one of I think of the attractions of being a an advisor to a startup that it's there's a clearer path to making a difference, right? If I'm an advisor to say Coca-Cola and I'm not, but I'm just going to pick that because they're down the street from me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I give them a piece of advice. They take it. Yay. If they don't take it, life is going to go on, right? Coca-Cola has been around for 120 years. They will be around long after I'm anywhere near this place. Um, you know, with a startup though, the advice that you give them, the help that they give you through a crisis can often make the difference as to whether or not that company's around or not. Absolutely. So do you have an ending to that story? How, how did they work their way through that crisis? How did they make, how, did they make payroll? They bounced paychecks and the workers showed up with torches and pitchforks. What happened? Well, we, uh, we spoke to the banker and arranged for an immediate uh, small short-term loan that required the founder to make a personal guarantee, which he promised his wife he would never do, but huh. he had to. So it, it was, it was, a, and it wasn't easy to talk him into it, but he had no choice and it was his problem. He had to solve it. Well, but you know, the good, the, the good news, and, and this is a topic for a different podcast, but you know, he may not have thought of even that option. If, if you hadn't been around as sort of an advisor to, to help him think of that, you know, you're in crisis, you're hyperventilating because you think your company's about to collapse. And you might think the last thing that you're going to be able to do is call a bank, right? The most risk averse of financing sources. And that's going to be the source of your funding literally overnight so that those checks clear. He was lucky and uh, it it turned out well and he learned a lesson and uh, eventually went on to great success. But, But it's those kinds of experiences that when you sign on to be an advisor or a member of the team, whatever your status um, you, it's so hard to anticipate every possible thing that could go wrong. And at the end of the day, you're dealing with people, not machines and not algorithms. And people can do odd things. They can be creative and they can be destructive. So you know, other than, you know, other than the kind of on the payment side and, and, you know, that, that is a risk too, is that, you know, um, Startups can't. Startups probably can't pay you your full rate, um, and you may be in deferred. Some people offer deferred payment programs, and I was, in fact, on the phone today with a law firm that you know has deferment payment programs for startups, and that payment may or may not materialize. But in addition to that, are there other risks of working with startups that somebody listening to this podcast should be aware of? Whether they're thinking about becoming a, you know, taking one on as a client or actually joining one as an employee or an officer. Well, beyond the obvious uh, compensation issues, whether you you get a paycheck and it never happens or whether you don't get as much as you're supposed to get or whether your fees are ever paid or you get Chinese paper hmm. and you put it on your wall 10 years later, um, there are other issues that, that anyone who's going to join, whether as an employee, an officer, or a director, uh, has to be mindful of. And I'm not giving legal advice, but I can tell you my opinion that it's very important for anyone who's in a role to be helper in those capacities to be mindful of the fact that if you have check signing authority, whether you're an employee or an officer, and if you're a director and the payroll withholdings aren't remitted to the state and federal authorities in full on time, or whether the worker compensation insurance premiums haven't been paid and or if um, there's back salaries and wages that haven't been paid, you may be personally responsible and liable for that. I think the term is joint and several liability. Again, I'm not an attorney. I'm not giving legal advice. But as a person who's going to be in the trenches, one still needs to have a basic understanding of the law as it pertains to his or her personal liability. So that's a factor. And I've seen this before where for example, in, in my field, someone says, oh, would you be our treasurer? We need someone to be the treasurer. Yep. 
And I have to explain to them, I will provide you the functions and benefits of a controller or treasurer or CFO, but I can't accept check signing authority um, because of the personal liability that's associated with it. And sometimes they just don't want to put the energy into understanding the nuance of what I've explained to them, but I have no choice. I can't wake up some morning and read, open my mail and find out that the IRS wants me to pay $25,000 because the, I'm the only person they can find uh, who was somehow associated and had check signing capacity. So that's one of the issues. The other issues, if you're a director, uh, you may be liable for other damages and the cost of defending yourself, whether the lawsuit is successful or unsuccessful. So compensation is a whole different animal, but the downside of being in a certain, helping in a certain capacity is something that I think is not as well understood as it should be by someone who's knowingly wanting to get involved. You can be an advisor or an ordinary employee and not have those perils. But if you're a nice guy or gal and you decide to accept the appointment as the acting CFO and they want you to sign on the check form at the bank, beware. You know, and, and I, I think that's really important that I, I want to kind of highlight this a little bit because one of the potential attractions of working for a startup is, you know, you may you may get a title that you might not have had the opportunity to get otherwise, right? You may you may just not have the seniority, haven't put in your dues, whatever, you know, whatever it is, right? And all of a sudden you become a chief something officer. And and that sounds great, but you know, being an officer of a company means something. And, you know, if, if, if you've got that O part at the end of your title, you know, that does mean that um, most likely, again, I'm not giving legal advice for sure, but, you know, there is a, a substantial risk that you're being put effectively in a, in a fiduciary position to shareholders and or employees. And, um, you know, as much as anything, and this is underappreciated, as much as anything, that's why people who have that title get paid as much as they do. It's it's not just because of their skill set and their seniority and whatever education they have, but also simply the willingness to take on that responsibility because it go you, you can't just you can't just walk away from it, um, you know. And 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 that's that's meaningful. And um, you know, I can't agree with you more that you know. Once you wipe the stars out of your eyes, sit down with your own legal counsel and work through what being an officer really means and put you on the hook for. And, you know, that'll, that will likely also differ state to state. So um, that, that's one of those things that I think is going to be more local in terms of how the law works and is national in, uh, in scope. I, I would add that there's also the potential damage to one's reputation and standing in the community. Um, one might be enamored of a new pump or a new contrivance of device and not have a good grounding in the laws of thermodynamics and, and uh, inertia uh, and doesn't know how to perform and wouldn't know what the results were from a test that did a, a mass energy balance. But at the end of the day, if that company raised money and every it took two and a half years to find out that the, the basic principles of physics or the operation of it, wasn't either possible or cost-effective, then everybody turns to anybody who can be pointed at and blames them for failure to provide proper oversight. And it's that classic unknown unknowns. Yep. And and it's a, it's a danger to one's reputation. And look, look at the people, and I won't cite the exact name of the company that starts with the letter T, but there was a company in California that raised a lot of money and had some cabinet members on its board of directors and it ended up being a well-publicized failure. I, yep. I have to watch my words judiciously here, but but think of all the people who get invited to a board and they're enamored like a, flaw, a moth to the flame. And then two years later, they find out it was either a hoax or it should have been understood that it could never possibly have worked. The thermodynamics weren't there. The chemistry wasn't there the cost effectiveness wasn't there. So uh, another point to of risk. Yeah. And that, that actually gives me an, uh, I'm going to write down a note here. We should, we really should have a podcast, you know, should I serve on a board because that enters into that discussion. Right. And, and, 
there's a lot of attractiveness to, to serving on a board. It's prestigious. Um, it can be very well compensated. It can be very rewarding work, but there is that downside that, you know, if, if things don't work out, you can very easily be left holding the bag. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Harlan, you've been working with startups a good chunk of your career. And I'm curious in, in your ex, in your experience, what are the most frequent needs? What, what do startups most frequently need help with? Well, in, uh, another friend of mine coached the phrase, sorry, phrased, came up with a phrase, coaching and cash, capital and coaching. Uh, they clearly need capital, but they also need to understand how to start a business, how to grow a business, how to utilize the capital so that they can go back for another round of capital when they're in all likelihood going to need several rounds of capital. Um, so th- they have to be educable. They have to be able to process advice. Not every piece of advice that I or anybody's going to give to a client is going to be the absolute best advice to take, but they have to be able to listen to advice and then know how to separate the wheat from the chaff and follow the good advice more often than not. And if they if they listen to experienced people, they're going to be better off. They'll have higher prospects for success in growing their business and raising capital, utilizing capital successfully and going back and getting another round at evaluation that doesn't in, doesn't call, result in what we sometimes call a down round or a cram down. Yep. So, you know, on, so the capital on, on the coaching side, what do you find yourself coaching your coaching people most frequently about? I'm so glad you asked that question. If, if, if there's one thing, if there's one thing that I'd really like to do to the entrepreneurial world to help them would be to help them get away from percentages. I wish I had a $20 bill, a crisp $20 bill for every time uh, an entrepreneur has come to me and it must be in the DNA they start telling me about how they want to do this percentage to this person, that percentage, that person. I say, stop. Again, I'm not giving them legal advice, but I say the person is going to remember five years from now that they had 2% of the company. Now, what you should have said at that was at that point in time, you'll have 2% of the company and we're going to have successive rounds of capital. And eventually you're going to have a much smaller slice of the pie, but the pie is going to be much larger. I am. Yep. I, I wish I could get most entrepreneurs, especially the people who come from a scientific technical domain, to understand that shares are issued in exchange for services and capital. And at some point in time, those shares have a percentage relationship to the total number of shares issued and outstanding. But get away from the concept of an absolute percentages. It's it's you don't take percentages out of the corporate treasury and bestow them at at sword point on someone's shoulder. You issue shares of stock and then you can calculate the percentages of ownership in a table, and that can get them in so much trouble because they didn't intend to mislead anybody. But five years from now, when somebody has a big success. Their attorney calls them up and says, well, John Jones or Susan Smith said you promised them 2% and you have to make a settlement to make the problem go away. That's interesting. So I I imagine in a lot of those cases, there's that promise. That's not even a written promise, is it? It's just a verbal promise. And I think a lot of people don't understand this. And again, I'm not an attorney either, but I have seen it where that implied promise is at least enough to get you to court. Yep. You may not win, but um, winning a court case is distracting and expensive, right? And there's just enough leverage to get, as long as you can get a, a judge to take the case, then, then you know that 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 person that claims that you have the that uh, received the promise, they all of a sudden have a lot of leverage. Yeah, I think there was a, a movie made about a famous case in the last ten years, but I'll leave that to your your uh, listeners imagination to figure out which one I'm talking about. So um, I think a common misperception or just a common perception of startups is, you know, um, that, I mean, they just can't pay. And uh, you know, 
you've been working with startups for 27 years. I can't imagine that they've done that all for free. So I'm just going to put the question to you, you know, can startups pay? Some can pay a small amount initially, and some can offer you a generous amount of founder stock, and some can offer a generous stock option or warrant, depending on whether you're an employee or whether you're an independent contractor. Um, I caution everybody who's inclined to take less than market rate compensation in cash that they should be mindful that the percentages are very low. The percentage of companies that have a liquidity event of meaningful return on capital could be as little as one out of a hundred. Mm-hmm. And so I try to put it in perspective. I explain to them, you might have to work with a hundred startups over the next 20 years for which you take warrants or founder stock or options. And maybe one out of a hundred, maybe two or three out of a hundred will give you a return on investment. So it's not for the faint hearted and it's not for people who have to put braces on the kids' teeth and send uh, high school students on to college unless they're independently wealthy to begin with. So you mentioned something I want to, I want to touch upon and I hope we'll spend some time here because I do think it's, it's important and it's complicated. And that is, um, you know, you may wear, you may very well be offered stock or warrants or options in lieu of cash payment. And um, in your mind, how do you, how do you think through that, whether or not you're willing to accept them at all, whether you're being offered enough or if there are terms that are being sufficiently flexible that you can actually do something with them. Can you walk through how, how you think about that in terms of being offered equity or what you think best practices would look like? Sure. Well, for acting CFO services and for helping a, a scruffy little startup to raise its first quarter million to million dollars worth of capital in the past, sometimes I've accepted 10% of the founder stock. Um, I'll give you a case in point uh, without embarrassing the company. Uh, I had a company that I once owned 5% of the company for a remittance of $50. And um, I now own 0.0005% of the company. The company had eight uh, venture capital rounds, preference rounds where each the, the B investors had their way with the A investors all the way up to the only guys that had a decent percentage of the company with a final in the eighth round. Sad story. Um, so it, ha- having said that, it didn't turn out well, but I made the calculus up front that if I own 5% of the company, maybe by the time there was a liquidity event, it might be worth, I might have 0.5% of a very large pie. And if they sell the company for a couple hundred million dollars and you take 0.05% of, of that proceeds at the liquidity event, uh, that might be a meaningful amount of return on investment at capital gains rates versus maybe the $25,000 that you could have uh, received if they would have had cash and paid you at market rates at that point in time. So it's your classic trade-off. You, you can't do it every day. Um, and sometimes what you have to do is a combined um, cash and warrants approach. And sometimes you just have to insist on cash. Um, And uh, I've had cases where people have come back to me from literally this year from 2012. They weren't quite ready in 2012. And this year they were finally ready. And I was grateful that they kept me in mind and got back to me. You know, I I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's, that's important is, you know, just because you sort of you say no to stock now, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that, you know, that opportunity won't come back around later. Right. So I I think what's also kind of interesting about the dynamic of that equation is, you know, you are kind of, you are giving sort of a signaling effect. If if somebody comes to me for advice or they want me to provide a service and they offer stock and I say yes versus no, right. I'm in effect, um, blessing that stock or not blessing that stock by being willing to exchange my time for it. Right. And, right. and that can, that can sort of lead to its own challenges in that conversation. So, you know, if, if some, maybe, and maybe someone's listening to this and they're, they're offered stock, they really just don't want stock, but they like to work with the company. 
can you offer some advice and kind of what you say or how you handle that conversation that, you know, basis says, look, just because I, just because I'm not taking stock doesn't mean I hate your company. It just means I'm not taking stock right now. How do you handle that conversation? Well, in terms of the interpersonal dynamics, the, the diplomacy, the, the desire to maintain goodwill and cordial relations with the person, uh, obviously one has to be tactful. Uh, you know, Sometimes it's just a matter of explaining the truth. My spouse won't let me work for stock anymore. We've had a couple of uh, wallpaper items we put on the wall. They're decorative, and the stock wasn't worth anything. Um, and again, as you point out, you never know when the people might come back after they do have some funding. Uh, I, I'm not sure if, if that responds to your question. Could, could you Would you mind going over it again? Yeah, no. I, well, I think I think we're heading in the right direction. So the the, the question simply is, or the the question is, there's a risk of offending somebody to some extent when you decline to take stock in their company, right? I mean, they think their company is right. great. Right. They, of course, uh, even if if you're going to work for the company, if you're going to be an advisor, I they have an idea in their mind they would like you to believe in the company as much as they do, right? right? But I think that that's um, that's that's not appropriate. I mean, it's great if you do happen to share the founder's zeal, and that's great. But it's it's not appropriate that an advisor and employee necessarily have the same fervor and devotion to the company and to the idea of the company as the founder, because nobody can act like a founder unless they're a founder, right? Well, your points are well taken. Here's one of the way ways I help put it in a framework that depersonalizes it and, and helps to make sure that the person's feelings aren't hurt or, or their self-image crushed. I explained to them, and this is a rank startup. I said, you're going to need $250,000. And the person sometimes says to me, especially a scientific technical person, what do you mean $250,000? I'll work for free for a couple of months. I said, you're going to need $50,000 of cash for the retainer with the patent attorney. You're going to need $50,000 retainer with the Securities Council and the General Council, who are not going to work for you until you pay them a cash retainer. You're going to need to go to some trade shows and and do some travel, and that's going to be $50,000. And you're going to need some walking around money and money for deposits and a few other things. These people are not going to take stock from you. You have to have cash. And then that puts it in a framework where I can become part of that professional or third-party milieu where we have to be paid. Um, now I'm fortunate. I, I have a built-in out because I'm a business appraiser. I I cannot. I'm I'm uh, ethically prohibited from taking stock in the company because it would create a conflict of interest. Right. So I'm I'm fortunate. I have an automatic get out of jail free card. Um. So yeah, there's a there's a school of thought that suggests that it may be worthwhile going to work for a startup just because of the experience that it will give you. Do you do you think there's something to that? Is there something to putting some time in with a startup, even if if the pay isn't there, just because it, it would give you a chance to learn new skills that you wouldn't ordinarily have the the opportunity to do? Well, in an absolute sense, you know, it, it if a person can afford the risk or can literally afford not to have any meaningful compensation for a period of time, and they have a a well-defined need to learn certain skill sets and to firsthand experience the problems, stresses, and frustrations of a startup company, then by all means, they should do that. I, I haven't met too many people who wanted it as a merit badge or, or something to add to their resume that they've had firsthand experience of the frustrations and problems associated with a the startup. They, they more likely are inclined to get involved because they're excited about the project. It might be a golfer and it's a new golf club. It might be a heart surgeon and a new heart valve. It might be a person who has an airplane and a guy or gal who's taken an iPad and substituting that for the $50,000 instrument control panel that they'd otherwise have to buy. In those kinds of situations, it makes sense for them to maybe jump in and join. But just to add to your resume, I, 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 I guess I would have trouble selling that to anybody. What about what about using work with a startup in order to help build a network and a personal brand? And and I, I can see two scenarios in which that this might be plausible. One is 
you're, you're out of school, you're just starting out and you've got sort of a blank slate professionally or second, you're, you're sort of transitioning out of a, out of a more conventional role and, and you want an opportunity just to start to, to meet the people in the, in the, the startup realm, wherever you are. And that could be a local geography. It could be national. Is, is there something to a thesis of saying this is a, this is a way to jump, jumpstart building a network in the space where I would kind of like to be in? Well, it's, it's a great question. Uh, if someone were coming right out of college and the, and the employment market wasn't very good and he or she wasn't burdened by immediate payback of a substantial amount of student loans, then they could very well say to themselves in good conscience, hey, why don't I go to work for this local startup? Maybe they'll pay me, maybe they won't. Maybe they'll pay me minimum wage and maybe I'll get some stock. It'd be great experience. A lot of people my age, people I have common interest in are there and who knows where it could lead. So that might make sense. For the person who's 45 to 55 years old and has family obligations um, and probably hasn't fully set aside resources for retirement, um, I don't think that would be well advised. So it's clearly tailored to a person's personal resources and risk level and ability to handle frustration. It's, it's tough. Yeah. And, you know, when I hear people that do that to me, it, to me, it just says it's a dressed up way of saying I'm doing an internship. Right. And if if you can do an internship, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, But, you know, like you said, I, I think a lot of this, it's, it's not about whether just like we talk about in our podcast, not about whether or not you should do it, but the thought pro- part of that thought process is, can you afford to do it, right? What is the opportunity cost of, of taking on that kind of responsibility versus pursuing something else? Sure. So um, can I go back? Sorry, can I go back to one of your other questions? I, I just wanted to add something to in cases where I'm looking at an opportunity. Is that timely? May I do that? Yeah, go right ahead. Okay. So I, I have a rule of fives. Um, as to how I size up opportunities, especially as it relates to taking all the compensation as founder stock. And in a nutshell, it's, does the company have world-class disruptive technology that has robust intellectual property, can be protected by a combination of patents and trade secrets? That's one. Two, does the company have market prospects for being able to achieve $100 million of revenue at 60% or higher gross margin within five years of funding? Is the second one, does the company's management team have a demonstrated track record of achievement in its scientific or technical realm? That's the third. Does the founder's team enjoy a good reputation and for integrity and the ability to listen and process advice is the fourth. And the fifth one is, does the founder's team have a commitment to a liquidity event in a reasonable time for time event horizon? Those are the five things that, that I apply when I'm doing my mental version of the black shoals formula. Okay. That's a, that's a pretty good checklist. Um, so let me, let me, let me switch gears here. Um, if you get involved in a startup, um, how do you, we talked about this a little bit and I want to expand upon that. As we talked about, there are some risks. Um, you know, there's a, there's a financial risk to some extent. There may be other risks. Um, you know, when you work with startups, how do you protect yourself to make sure that your, you know, that your risk is managed appropriately? Well, uh, beside the earlier point about not taking check signing authority and to protect my reputation, uh, I, I try to do as much due diligence as I can on the science and technology, not as an expert, but uh, I will go to people who know something about metallurgy or somebody who knows something about biochemistry or somebody that knows something about a particular global marketing opportunity. Um, I may not always get sufficient information, but at least I've avoided the possibility of overlooking something that somewhere down the road people will point to and say, why didn't you know? Why didn't you find out this or that? Uh, kind of a thing. Uh, one of the real tough things with entrepreneurs is you never know. What, you, you've just met somebody, and you know, short of doing a criminal history on them in a bankruptcy search, 
and a few other things that are sometimes difficult or less than pleasant to do. Um, you just never know what the person's really like or really capable of. Um, one of the risks to the entrepreneurial team is that the oftentimes there's a high incidence of family stress that can lead to divorce. I've met a number of entrepreneurs who are ultimately very successful and they've been through several marriages, marriages um, and they've had problems with some of their children. And, you know, it's that old saw, if they can mistreat their spouse this way or that way, maybe they're going to eventually mistreat you as a professional. Um, and when people are cornered and they they have real serious problems. You just never know what's going to develop. Um, so nothing's perfect. You can never be fully protected. You just try to do your best with reference checking and, and checking on the technology. And I guess the bottom line, it, it makes it easier for me to accept a client if after I've introduced them to three attorneys and three CPAs and three patent attorneys and three bankers and three insurance agents and three of this, that, and the other. And I see that they've taken on a prominent attorney whom I respect and a prominent CPA whom I've respected, et cetera, et cetera. And they're, they're associated now with good professional people to give them good, strong professional advice. That helps me to get a better comfort level. And it also increases the chances that there'll be guardrails that'll keep these people from going over the cliff. Um, what, and what about documentation and contracts? Do you think that's a big part of that too, to make sure that your scope is limited and there's some sort of indemnification where, where possible? Absolutely. Uh, I, I find good fences make good neighbors. And yep. I, ex I explain to them, you know, here's what I'm going to put down on a piece of paper. Here's what I'm prepared to do. And this is the compensation I'll accept. And these are the contingencies and the terms and conditions under which we're going to operate. Um, and in my case, I have to explain to them that I may have two, three, four, five, or six parties for whom I'm providing similar services at the same time, but they're not directly competitive and there's no conflict of interest. Uh, and on a, any given time, you might call me with an immediate uh, problem and I might be unable to give you immediate attention. And you just have to understand that. It's kind of like being a cardiologist in a small town. Not everybody's going to have a heart attack at the same time, but if they do, how do you spread yourself around? So it's, you, you do your best. You have a written agreement and to extricate yourself from what could be a difficult situation. I always try to make an initial term that has limited duration so that if, if I can see things aren't working out very well, then we just don't renew because a renewal requires bilateral mutual agreement to renew. And if I decline to renew, then it's less, it's easier to that way than just to pick up the phone all of a sudden and say, Hey, I'm just not comfortable. I don't want to keep working with you. Goodbye. Yeah. And you know, and that, that contract part, I want to, I want to pause on that for just a second, because I, th I think one can be lured into not having documentation when you really should one, because the startups don't want to deal with it, right? The startups sort of take as a badge of honor this, you know, we operate loosey-goosey. We operate out of the lines of, of, of normalcy, and we don't care about rules and everything else. They may also be run by 24-year-olds that don't know anything <laughs> and <laughs> haven't had the bruises and broken bones and scars that come from not signing agreements. Um, and, you know, I think if you don't come from that world, you can be lulled, you can be seduced, really, into thinking, well, that's just the way startups are. We're not going to sign agreements, and we're all just going to sort of do handshakes and exchange Twitter accounts, and everything's going to be great. Um, but, um, uh, you know, that, that for most people, you know, some sort of documentation of the nature of your relationship and where your liability and responsibility begins and ends, you know, don't, don't give in to that. Don't give in to the temptation to sort of throw that out the window. That, that's worth keeping. That's good advice. One of the other things I, I do oftentimes before I've accepted a, a consulting assignment is um, I, I will meet with people for coffee and give them some advice over the phone. And I'm always careful to, to, to explain to them, I'm going to help you at this point in time up to a certain point 
And for these services, they're gratis. I'm happy to help you. At some point in the future, I'm going to come back to you and say, okay, the introductory period is over. If you'd like to have uh, ongoing services, then then now we need to have an agreement for services. Um, and by telling them that in advance, and then by actually doing some things that are hopefully useful for them and they appreciate it, it's more likely that they're going to take me up on the consulting assignment uh, at the future point. So many of them are are afraid that they sign a contract with you and you take the retainer and you do nothing. And I can understand yeah. that that anxiety on their part. So I always like to help people with a little bit. And then if they end up, if I've actually done something pretty good for them and I say to them, okay, now it's time for the contract. And they say, no, thanks. Then I, I look upward and I go, thank you, because I've just found out that this is one of those persons who's a taker and uh, believes in a sense of entitlement. And I'd rather know that now than a year and a half from now. So thank you. Good luck to you. And uh, that's fine. So that, that touches on another point. We're talking with Harlan Jacobs and uh, we're talking about um, working with startups. And, um, you know, I, you know, I can't speak for the, the Minnesota environment, but down here in Atlanta, we do have, I think, a very strong pay it forward environment here. Um, many of us who have experience will make ourselves available to give um, to make it, to give advice and support to startups. I've, I've had monthly office hours for a long time. And, uh, you know, I'm curious what you, what you think about that model. Is that something you've ever done yourself? Have you seen others do it? Do you think it makes sense? Do you think it's crazy? What does that sort of thing kind of sound like to you? Well, first off, I compliment you for uh, being part of a community there that does that. And for you yourself doing it, uh, that's, uh, that's a common ethos here in Minnesota. In fact, we're the home of what's called the 5% Club, where major corporations, starting with Pillsbury uh, and General Mills, gave 5% of their pre-tax profits to charity. Now, uh, as to in-person service, paying it forward, paying it back, yeah, that, that's part of our, our ethic, our social ethic here in Minnesota, and I think it's great. Um, and it helps us to make up for the fact that we're not a bastion of venture capital. Um, I've seen great ideas here, not fail to get local funding. And these things would have got funding in Silicon Valley. And therefore yep. they, they need a lot of extra coaching and talent. Another problem that we have, which we try to overcome in the mentorship thing is in Silicon Valley, you fail. And that entitles you to a hearing with the venture capitalist to do another deal in Minnesota. I don't know what it's like in your community. It's you still get this. You know, remember the book, the Scarlet Letter. Well, you, here you get a scarlet F on your on your jersey for failure, hmm. and you hardly ever get a second round of capital from anybody for your next company if you've had a failure in your first company. And and that's 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 a problem that we have here, and it requires extra care and attention on the part of those of us who can help these people. I, I, I was going to be an actuary, and in college we had to study statistics, and I remember a type. Two error is the rejection of a valid hypothesis. And I've seen so many valid hypothesis, hypotheses go unfunded here. Um, in fact, I have a company that's in the medical device realm, helped them get started in 1996, and they're still looking for more funding, and the technology is still viable. There's been no shelf life for it. So you just have to keep helping these people, whether it's their first time or whether they've been at it for a period of time. It, it's it might sound arrogant to say, but it's it's sort of a modern day version of noblesse oblige. If you've been benefited from other people's help, it's time for you to help other people. Yeah, we, we have a similar concept. You know, we try to push the button so the elevator goes down um, to pick the next guy up. But, um, you know, we, we do have that Scarlet F here as well, which, which is unfortunate because um, – I don't know if there's any better education than a business failure. And in fact, uh, one of our early podcasts, Milas King came on, I want to say his podcast number 12 or 13 or 14, something like that. And, and he, you know, he was on a program that, that was, uh, whose title was, should I close my business? And he's had to close a couple of businesses and he was a courageous guy that come on and was, was willing to sort of lay it out there and talk about the failures. And, and one thing he made very clear, and I've learned about him as I've gotten to know him is that, the success that he enjoys now is a direct result of the 
of what he learned from the previous failures. Now he didn't re- he didn't raise external capital. He, he just simply worked his ass off and bootstrapped it. Um, but when I remember when I asked, you know, he, his first venture was a pizza restaurant and it failed. And, uh, I said, did you have, you know, what was your thought process about starting another one? Said I had to start another one. Otherwise everything I invest in the education, the first one would have gone to waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately that's only, t- that's something only time's going to figure out. You know, there are very few places, unfortunately, that celebrate failure, that, that see that as the education that it is. Um, and unfortunately, it's just going to sort of, uh, it's going to sort of take time. Um, Harlan, we're running out of, out of time here and I want to be respectful of, of your time. And of course that of the audience, um, this has been a, a, a neat conversation with a lot of good nuggets in it. If, if people would like to contact you for more information to carry on this discussion, um, can they do so? And if so, what's the best way to do that? Uh, sure, I'd be uh, very pleased to hear from any of your colleagues and viewers. Uh, telephone number uh, 612-701-8153, and the email address is H-A-R-L-A-N-G-E-N-E-S-I-S at M-A-C.com. And I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, uh, I guess uh, that's probably the best way to try. All right, well, thank you. That's That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Harlan Jacobs so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Bradyware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. 